we're back. It's Paige McBride, a new kind of therapy podcast, uh, not self-help, but self-submission. We are on episode three. Pretty fun. If you haven't taken a listen to the first two episodes, we talked modesty and women empowerment, and then we talked about self-love culture and the gospel. Um, so, I mean, could it get more interesting? No, obviously not. Um, and today we are here to talk grace and obedience um, and American religion and Protestantism in particular. Um, so we're going to be identifying what I think are a few areas of neglect um, that are common in the Protestant church or what I will call the popular Protestant church today. This isn't to say that um, I, what I'm trying to get at by that term is um what you'll get from the vibe of the media um, on a lot of Christian platforms. This can be a common area of neglect, I think, and it's the the call to Christian obedience. Um, and that's, you know, part of what I'm talking about in my little slogan for the podcast, not self-help, but self-submission. Um, a key part of the Christian life is submission. And and in some ways that does mean obedience. The two words aren't the same, surely. But when we come under the rule of God, which is is what submit means, it, it means to come under the protection of, to come kind of like under the umbrella of, to be covered by, um, to come under. That word submission, um, it has to do with pretty much the entire Christian life. And um, this is something I've talked about before, that women um, just resent the call to submission in the Bible. Um, and we call the Bible patriarchal. We call it misogynistic and oppressive and archaic, whatever. Um, but really, if you read the, the entirety of the Gospels and just the New Testament, um, submission is not the characteristic trait of a woman. It's the characteristic tra trait of the Christian. I mean, Jesus Christ himself, uh, read through the Gospel of John. He talks all about how his role is to submit to the Father. Um, and we know that the father, you know, this is basic Trinitarian Orthodox doctrine. We know the father's not greater than the son, but we do know that the son takes a role of submission coming down to earth and doing everything that um, the father has given him to do. And he does it out of his own volition, out of his own love for us. But he is ultimately the great submitter of all time, our Lord and King Jesus. And so um, I want to talk about this idea of submission and also more specifically within that topic of obedience. Um, because I think that the the church, particularly the Protestant church in reaction ever since um, the Reformation, you know, Luther and Calvin um, are the two big voices of the Reformation that came out against um, some of the typical uh Catholic teaching against Catholicism, and, and they came against the idea that you could earn your salvation by works. And, and they looked uh, a lot to Romans for this um, belief and Galatians and Ephesians. I mean, it's all over the place. Um, and it is scripturally sound. Do not hear me uh, saying that I don't agree with the reformers. Uh, Luther and Calvin are some of our greatest minds. Um, and they are certainly um, faithful to the scriptures when they talk about the need for faith um, to be the hinge on which our justification um, lands. And so I, I'm not trying to say that uh, we are not justified by faith alone and grace alone. I'm merely trying to say that ever since then, 
it seems as though the church has swung to what scholars might call the opposite of extreme of antinomianism. And, and all that big word means is just that um, they don't really care about rules and laws and um, they basically think you can live however you want. And you don't really hear that in the church. You don't hear those words, but I feel as though we get that sentiment um, throughout the church in the, in the Protestant church that obedience, discipline, um, and submission are not really driven home from the pulpit as much today. Uh, we talk a lot about grace and we seem to think that grace is the affirmation of the way we're living. And, and therefore grace becomes a source of complacency. It's actually the fuel for us to just stay exactly as we are. Um, and I'm going to argue that the biblical vision of grace is actually the exact opposite, that grace is the impetus um, from which we are able to be transformed and no longer be able to be complacent, but that we're pushed forward into a life of discipline and obedience and um, conforming ourselves to the likeness of Christ. Um, and so I want to look at a few passages that I think are key in this discussion about um, obedience and the role it has in the Christian life. Um, and then I want to kind of bring this as a call to action for my listeners Um you are called to obey. Um, and if you think that's legalistic, I hope I have convinced you otherwise by the end of the podcast. So let's get started. Let's go to Jesus first, right? Um, because a common argument or a common way of thinking about the gospel and about the Bible is that, you know, it was the Old Testament that cared about laws and rules and regulations and rituals. But in the New Covenant, that's not what it's about. It's about grace and love. And, and through that, we kind of foster that idea that God is different in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament. Um, and I will always push for us to see more continuity between the Old and the New Testament. Um, and surely there are so many different views on exactly how we view the law um, in, of the Old Testament and its usage in the New Testament. But I want you to, to hear this passage from Jesus um, and, and let it speak to our current culture right now. Um, because I think this might sting a little bit when we see that we might have been operating under an assumption that a lot of people of Jesus's day were as well. As Jesus went around and started doing miracles, started hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, started forgiving prostitutes, whatever, he was doing some pretty radical things. Um, he was giving out some pretty radical grace. I mean, the disciples were a ragtag group of a bunch of idiots, basically, uh, just like you and me. And you know, people were kind of astounded. He wasn't like the other rabbis in that sense. But listen to the Sermon on the Mount, which, by the way, is all about the call for Christian ethical living. Um, hear how he corrects the assumptions of people that have seen him be so gracious to sinners. Hear this. Um, chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 17 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Do you hear that? That's a very positive statement about the law, about the Torah, which is um, generally refers to um, the first five books of the Bible, but also when you hear the law and the prophets in the New Testament, it's generally referring to the entire Hebrew Bible, which would be our Old Testament. And, and he corrects them. He says, do not go around thinking that I came to get rid of that stuff. I didn't come to put it to the wayside. I came to complete it, to fulfill it, to do it to bring it to uh, completion and fullness um, and hear that because I think that's something people think. 
And Jesus is speaking, I think, right to us in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, don't think that I've come to do that. And then he says, um, if you look at verse 19, he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever call, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the, fair, the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's all this debate on legalism. Well, not debate, really. Just people are always calling uh, people legalistic in the church. Um, do you think legalistic describes Jesus here? Like hot take? You think he's being legalistic? Like, let's look. He just said that if you relax one of the least of these commandments, you're going to be the least in the kingdom of heaven. Um, the least of these commandments. So he's basically saying, the, and, and before that, he says not even a dot, not even a little punctuation mark of the law can be taken away. I mean, talk about attention to detail, right? And then he goes on top of that and he says, hey, you know the most religious people you know, the Pharisees, who have all these rules about how they're going to follow the law to do exactly what it says, and then even more so, you know them? You have to be better than them to be in the kingdom of heaven. Your righteousness has to exceed theirs. And, and I think if we, we read this passage and we didn't just say, oh, well, you know, this was just to get to people to realize that they were sinners and then, um, but Jesus doesn't actually, we don't actually need that kind of righteousness. Or later, he literally says, hear this, he literally says in verse 48, chapter five, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Hear that, take it in. Let it, let it ruminate for a moment. You must be perfect. Is Jesus setting some unrealistic standard or is he just trying to make us realize we're sinners and then he'll go do the stuff on the cross and then we're not even to worry about what the Sermon on the Mount says now because Jesus died for us? See, I, I, think, I think we're missing something when we, when we read the Sermon on the Mount and don't take Jesus' words seriously as a message to us, not just to the people listening. And let's not just write it off as a way to tell ourselves that we're sinful. I think that's usually the way we read the Sermon on the Mount. Let's really consider this. Verse 20, about this righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. It's Jesus's high view of God that informs this, this verse. He's saying, if you want to stand before the just God, the perfectly holy and just God, you need a perfect righteousness. So not even the Pharisees would be able to pass the test. You need 100% on the righteousness exam, right? That's because God is that just and that holy. And so notice that Jesus wants to raise the bar to God. He doesn't want to bring the bar down to us. And I think that's what we think grace is. We think that grace is God bringing the bar down and saying, see, now you've met it. You're worthy of eternal life. No, grace does not touch the standard. The standard is still a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. The, the standard is still, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. But grace is what takes us and rises us to that standard. The standard doesn't come to us. We go to the standard. And, and that's the life of Christ because he did come to the, fulfill the law. He didn't come to ignore it. He came to do it. And, and, and therefore, 
in faith, we can, we can take hold of that righteousness. And there is the beautiful doctrine of justification by faith, wherein we can stand in the righteousness of Christ and actually have that righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. And, and surely that's a crucial part. But we need to realize that righteousness, everyday good living, that's what we're talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about lust. He's talking about anger. He's talking about loving your enemies. This is everyday living. Righteousness is what we're talking about here. Jesus cares and he cares a lot. And then after he says, don't think that I came to get rid of the law, he goes on to show them a few examples. So he says, you know, the law says don't murder. You know what I say? Don't even say something mean to someone or you're worthy of hell. And so if anything, Jesus is raising the bar for moral ethics and for Christian living. He's not bringing it down. And so, yes, Jesus is full of grace, but he's also full of truth. And we cannot keep thinking that grace and truth um, go opposite ways. They do not. They go hand in hand. Hear that from Jesus. I want to look at one other passage also in Matthew. Matthew 23, the woes to the Pharisees. Um, such an interesting passage. And Jesus just grills the Pharisees. And I think this is usually what people think of when they think of legalism. They think of the Pharisees and how they had all these rules and regulations that they made everybody enforce and how that's horrible. And then they condemn people in the church today that encourage people to follow certain rules and say they're being Pharisees and legalistic. Hear what Jesus says right before he goes into the woes of the Pharisees. He says this, then Jesus, oh, this is chapter 23, verse one. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses's seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do for they preach, but they do not practice. Do you see he's condemning the Pharisees, not for their desire to follow Moses's law, he says, no, they sit and learn at Moses' seat. So listen to them. The issue with the Pharisees is they talk a big talk and they don't walk any walk. And then he goes on to talk about how um, they are just all about wanting to be seen and being honored. Um, and they don't actually care about others. They never help the poor. They don't care about the weightier matters of the law, such as justice and mercy and faithfulness. They're blind guides. Um, and they mislead people. And so he goes on to attack the Pharisees for that, because the things that they care about so much aren't the law of God, they're men's laws. And you can see that there's multiple passages throughout the gospel where Jesus says, the reason the Pharisees are condemned is because they've exalted man-made rules and not God-made rules. So it's not rules that are the problem. I think people... Christians really think that being rule-oriented is a bad thing. And it's just wrong because it's biblical. Jesus just said he didn't come to abolish law, but to fulfill it. If you want to be Christ-like, that means that there's a certain way in which you are devoted to following God's ways, and those are rules. So Jesus didn't condemn the Pharisees for being careful to follow rules. He condemned them for being careful to follow their preferenced rules that weren't actually God-given, that didn't have the authority of Moses and, and scripture canonicity on them, right? So hear that, that, that this idea that being um, concerned about rules is legalistic, I think it leads us down um, a bad path because it, it teaches us to think that, that the Christian life isn't associated with rules at all. Um, when in fact, I think that as we start to dive into um, the 
the epistles and the rest of the New Testament, we'll see that even after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's still a very key role of um, following rules in the Christian life. And grace is actually the basis for them, not the antithesis to them. So let's, let's turn there real quick. So we are going to start in Romans, Romans 12. Um, let's take a look here. So most of Romans, the beginning of Romans, one through eight mostly, is just talking about the gospel. And like I said earlier, the, the book of Romans was key in the Reformation um, because it gives one of the, the most clear um, and convicting presentations of the sinfulness of man and the need for the righteousness of God um, to cover us and so that we cannot be justified by our works. Um, and so if there were one book um, that we would think would would make it clear to us that Christianity is not about works, but about faith and grace, it's this book. But I want you to see here that because, just because we're not justified by works does not mean they have no role in the faith. And I think we've made obedience and quote-unquote works as as if they're kind of in opposition to faith and grace, and I'm going to push back against that um, against that idea and, and say let's let's look. So Paul just went through. I mean, let's see where it is. Chapter three, I believe. He makes this grand statement. He says, "For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law." Um, or sorry. Oh. He says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. I knew I read that wrong. Oh, my goodness. So he's saying that justification is apart from the works of the law. One is justified by faith and faith alone. And that faith comes by the grace of God. But then hear this as he moves into the more practical side of the book where he actually starts to teach um, the, the church how to live. He, he starts out chapter 12 and says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers by the mercies of God. Remember that he's saying this by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So hear this. There's a very specific call to be transformed, to live a certain way. And he says that it's by the mercies of God that he's appealing to this. So God's mercy actually has a role to play in transformation. When we think of the gospel purely in terms of justification, which is like our legal standing, meaning we are declared righteous, we no longer um, have to go to hell, we no longer face judgment. If we think of the gospel merely as that, getting rid of the judgment that we deserve because of sin, we don't see the full story that the Bible gives because that's just step one. Justification is step one. It's transformation, sanctification, consecration that comes, that's the telos, which is a fancy word for the goal or the ultimate purpose. The goal is to get us to be like Christ because guess what? Genesis 1, that's what we are made to be, the image of God. And God is determined to get us back there. So if you think the goal of salvation is merely justification, you've cut salvation short. Salvation is the whole scheme of God saving us from our sins, killing the old self, and then slowly putting the new self on until he gives us the resurrected self in glory in which we finally do truly image him once again like an Eden. 
So, so here, Paul, he says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. And he talks about that in the context of God's mercy, in the context of his grace. Transformation and grace are clearly put side by side in this verse. It's Transformation is a consequence of the gospel. And he talks about this earlier, and I, I talked about this a little bit in the um, self-love gospel episode, so I won't do too much here. But go ahead and read Romans 6. It's been such a pivotal passage for me in my faith development and thinking about what it means to be a Christian. Because to be a Christian is not, again, to just be justified. If that's all that Christian meant, then life would look absolutely no different. But Christianity is actually about union to Christ. So, So Paul says this. He asks the rhetorical question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? As if sinning, you know, is like, will help grace. And this is in chapter six, verse one. And then verse two, he says, by no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore baptized with him in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So he says, if we've been unified with him in a death like his, certainly we'll be unified in a resurrection like his. And then he says later on, therefore, take off the old self and put on the new self. Therefore, you are unified to Christ by faith. Therefore, take off the old self, put on the new self. It's this beautiful progression of the gospel tells you you're a new person. Now start acting like it. And so there's absolutely practical everyday living rules to be applied here. He says, this is the same chapter. Um, he says, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God and let no sin reign in your mortal body. Don't present yourselves to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin has no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. Do you hear this? Paul just said, for you're not under law, but under grace. And he's saying that as motivation for you to live well, not to live whatever way you want to. Being under grace means that you actually have the ability now to live well. Grace is the, is the capacity to fulfill your calling of righteousness. It is not your excuse for complacency to continue in sin. That's what he said right in verse one. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. So actually, the idea of being under the law is that the law holds you in your sin. It shows you what a despicable failure you've been in righteousness, and you are a slave to sin under the law. Under grace, you actually begin to keep the rules that were in the law because grace empowers you to do so. And I mean, there is such a thorough, uh, complex study in scholarship of what Paul thinks the law and what he means when he talks about it. But I think we can see it's clear from this passage at least that grace does not mean you get to keep living however you want and God wants you just as you are. God doesn't want you just as you are. He loves you just as you are, but he demands that you come forth into what you were made to be, which is an instrument for righteousness as someone who's been brought from death to life in the words of Paul. And so he says to be transformed, therefore. Another good book to look at for this um, that talks a lot about being justified by grace and not by works of the law is Galatians. I mean, Paul is coming for the false teachers called Judaizers that were saying that people could be justified the law, by the law, particularly by doing things like circumcision. 
And Paul literally says to those people that they should emasculate themselves. So he's he's ticked, okay? He is ticked about false teachers saying that we could be justified by works of the law because um, he believes firmly that we are justified by grace. But hear this. That does not stop Paul from calling the Galatian church to an ethical life, an ethical life that's based on following God's ways. So listen to this, part one. In chapter five of Galatians, he says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Okay, sounds good so far. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is, again, his assumption that it's actually to be under to be living in sin is what slavery is. That's slavery. It's like when Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And the people there are like, the Jews are like, we've never been slaves. We're not slaves. And he says, oh, yes, you are. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And so it's actually freedom that the gospel brings us into that allows us not to sin. And the idea that that Paul and Jesus are connecting freedom with not sinning is kind of it's it's anti-intuitive for us um, because we think that freedom means oh you get to do whatever you want like you can you can break any rule you want to but Jesus is actually saying freedom means that you actually get to be free from sins hold on you which means you actually get to do what's good freedom is the ability to be who you were made to be to be good to live well and so Paul says for you were called to freedom in verse 13 of chapter 5 for you were called to freedom brothers only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Hear that? It's a word. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so Paul is actually still referring to the law here for the inspiration of Christian living. And, and it's it's a very complex system here, but you have to realize that that obeying God's ways is an integral part of the freedom and grace in which Christians live. Okay, let's look um, at a few more. Um, let's go to 1 Peter, uh, actually 2 Peter chapter 2. This is such an interesting passage to me, um, and it's talking about uh, confirming our calling, okay? So hear this first. In chapter 1 of 2 Peter, Peter says in verse 3, his divine power, meaning God, has granted us or has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness and godliness. So if you think that the gospel isn't about making us actually godly people, if you think that's just, oh, Christians being like, I'm so holy, I, I follow God's rules. If you think that that's like a bad thing about Christianity, then you're not a biblical Christian. Because the Bible says that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Um, so that through them, we might become, hear this, partakers in the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So the goal of salvation actually becomes being partakers in the divine nature, or maybe a different way of putting that would be image bearers, people who reflect God. And so then he says, for this reason, for that reason. So because God wants to make you a partaker in the divine nature, he says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Do you hear that? Make every effort. Are you making every effort 
to supplement your belief and trust in Christ with godly living, aka virtue. Virtue, the word virtue means excellent morals. Virtues are excellencies. They're, they're people who live into goodness to the, to the utmost. That's what a virtue is. And so Paul says, you're to strive for that. You're to strive for excellence. The, the, the ancients, um, not the ancients, the church fathers, um, the desert fathers, they talked about the virtue of mag, magnanimity, which I can barely say. But it was this virtue that talked about the desire for glory. To, be, to live into the glorious things that God has called us to. And we might want to write that off as pride, like, oh, they want to be glorified, they want to be exalted. No, no. They want to live a life of glory, meaning of meaningfulness, of, of weight, of greatness for God because they've been called by him. And I think we've lost that, that, that view that views Christianity as this great ascent to the divine that is hard and long and yet exciting and thrilling in which we slowly become like God and strive to partake in that divine nature. So Paul says, or Peter, my bad, in verse five, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And then he says, and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Do you hear all that? Those are all ways of life. And he says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you? Wow. This is convicting. Peter is showing a concern that we wouldn't be unfruitful in our faith. Are you ever concerned that your faith is not bearing fruit? Is that, is that something that keeps you up at night? Doesn't keep me up at night, usually. Maybe after I read First Peter. Peter says this, he says, you need to do these and strive for these things to increase in your life so that you are kept from being ineffective or unfruitful in your knowledge of who Jesus is. Meaning that to the, the natural result of knowing Jesus is virtue and godliness and self-control. That I, I, We've missed out on that today. He says, for whoever lacks these things is so nearsighted that he's blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Do you hear that? It's gospel. He says, you're forgetting about grace, the grace that cleansed you from your former sins, and you're going back and living in them as if that's who you are. No, the call is to live as God has called you to live, and you are forgetting the gospel when you walk in sin. That's, that's a hard word to hear. So he says, therefore, brothers, verse 10, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That verse is intriguing. He says it's actually through the practicing of our virtues and the putting on of godliness that God will provide a way for our entrance into the eternal kingdom. Now, that sounds like self-righteousness, like works righteousness, right? It's by being godly that I get to go into the kingdom. But no, he says, for in this way, you'll be richly provided for. So this idea that our effort goes against God's grace and the fact that it's all a free gift that we don't deserve is actually not biblical. Effort and grace aren't opposed to one another. 
In fact, let's let's turn to 1 Corinthians um, and let's look at chapter 15. Paul's talking um, about the resurrection of the dead and that he became an apostle. And he's kind of saying, like, it's kind of crazy I'm an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And then he says this in verse 10 of chapter 15. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Do you hear that? So God, I always say, do you hear that? But I want you to hear that. So it's God who has made him who he is. So he says that what I am right now, the new man I am, is because of the grace of God. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Do you hear that? To Paul, he can't even tell between his effort and the grace of God. Because he knows that his effort is, in a sense, the grace of God within him working. He says, I am what I am by the grace of God, and I worked for it. So working for it and the grace of God in this passage are not contrary. They are not in opposition. They go together. So yes, there is a call for you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians talks about that. He says, work out your feet your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who is at work within you. Paul in that passage in Philippians is associating our working with God's work. So if you don't feel a daily grind in working out your salvation with fear and trembling, then you should check yourself because that complacency doesn't mean that God's grace has showered you and you're finally comfortable in your own skin. It actually means your complacency is a result of not filling yourself with the grace of God. Because if the grace of God was building in you, it would be transforming your life. So that you would say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And I worked harder and harder than anyone could think. But it was the grace of God that did it in me. Paul says this very similar thing in Colossians. I'm going all over the town to show you that I'm not making this up, that this is biblical. Okay, let's look here. Colossians. Um, at the end of chapter 1, Paul is talking about what his goal is. And he's saying that his goal in proclaiming Jesus is that everyone would be presented mature in Christ. Okay? He says that's his goal, that we be presented mature in Christ. Some translations say perfect in Christ because perfect, complete, mature are all the same word in Greek. Um, and actually in Hebrew as well. They, they all work together. Um, and he says that for that, for that, for that maturity, for that perfection, for that I toil, verse 29 struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. It's God's energy that he works within us, and we struggle working with that energy. It's, it's, it's literally like we cannot tell the difference between our effort and God's grace within us. It's like it's the same thing. And that's crazy, and that's beautiful, that Paul is saying um, that my effort is Christ in me. That being complacent would be the opposite of Christ in me. It's my constant desire to strive for glory and for godliness and goodness that is the grace of God within me. And so I think this is a hard word for us to hear today. That if your life has never been about conforming to God's standards, maybe you've actually misunderstood the gospel to be an affirmation of your sin instead of a way to transform away from your sin. Um, God did not just save us from something. He saved us to something. He saved us from our sin and to the newness of life. And we're called Christian to walk in that now, not just in heaven. So if you find yourself 
struggling with complacency, the gospel is actually the place to go. It is the, the trampoline that provides us the ability to jump into sanctification. Um, and so I just encourage you today, what ways does your life not reflect Jesus? What things do you do? What habits do you have that aren't associated with godliness? Get rid of them by the grace of God. By the grace of God, struggle with everything in you to be more like Christ. And that is not because you think you are righteous or better or holier than thou. It is actually because you knew how sinful you were and you know the power of Christ in you to make you new. Take off the old self and put on the new self, friends. And as always, may the good, good Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you. And may he give you peace. Peace out, guys. Have a great day. Thank you.